hello and welcome to episode number 462 of the Plain Talking UK podcast. I'm Carlos, I'm back. And on this week's show, uh, one airliner decides its nose gear is too good to use. One cargo carrier starts to thin out its aircraft, starting with the MD-11. That's fine by me. They're an ugly aircraft anyway. And one pilot decides that a license isn't needed to fly his jet. In the military news this week, the Irish go all C-295 and the National Museum of the USAF hosts air power history tours and joining me this week he's in the studio where it's less than 40 degrees celsius it's matt smith yeah it's not bad actually at the moment we have a, a positively tolerable 25 today it's not too bad at all Ooh. I know it's 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 it, but then it is very grey. And if you're in the UK and on a Friday evening, you'll know it's been a very strange day weather-wise. It's very dark and it's very grey and just not very nice, really. Now, Matt, you live just literally not less than half probably a mile, half like a mile yeah, from yeah. me that way, and I'm looking out my studio window here, and I'm seeing lots of dots of wet stuff on the window. Oh no. I'm glad I bought everything inside. Oh dear. Oh dear. Lovely. Just just glad I washed the car earlier. Anyway, right. okay. <laughs> joining us as always again this week, he's back, our aficionado of all things British and Airways. It's, of course, Neville Bounds. Yeah, no flying this week for me. Um, just uh, driving around quite a lot for work. Um, and, um, yeah, well, it's been a bit quieter this week, I have to say, but uh, next week it's going to be very full-on. Uh, not in the air, but on the road. So oh. lots of driving next week and customer visits and what have you. But um, very pleased to be back on the show this week. Uh, I spent a f- couple of e- evenings this week um, editing some more footage from the uh, Museum of Flights at East Fortune. Uh, and later on in the show, we'll be featuring the interview that Carlos did uh, with Ian Brown, who's the curator there. Uh, a fascinating interview. And uh, I'm really pleased that uh, Ian was able to give us his time because it's uh, it's come out very well i must say well it's good to have you on as always nev and perhaps hopefully you'll you'll be back in the air next week well um although at a flight level where you can you breathe oxygen uh, well yes i mean rather than just <laughs> staying at flight level eight zero which is a, okay. a bit a quite bit low sluggish, isn't it yeah I, I must say yes <laughs> yes i did listen back to last week's show i heard all about the fun you had now mind you to be fair to the airline i did get my compensation this week because it did go over a three-hour delay not by much though i don't think but um uh, and it was in my bank by um yesterday so that's uh, a week and a bit to get some compensation oh, good. From, uh, that's good. from big airways so thank you very much well He's back again with us this week, and it's the person who seems to do an awful amount of work at the moment with the show in the background, uh, looking after us guys at the minute, and uh, is uh, our newest member of the team. Uh, welcome back. It's Nick Codling. Good evening. Good to see you guys. How's everybody doing this week? It's good to be here. All right, I think. Getting away with it. That's, that's always been my motto. It's just like, how are you getting on this week? Well, I'm getting away with it, you know. <laughs> Just, just be, no, just be careful, to, Nick. Behind you there, you those shoes. No, nobody can do that. Uh, oh my say, word! It's, <laughs> it's quite, quite the unique, uh, quite the unique uh, badge he has there. But uh, yeah, gonna be, uh, 
Yeah, we will be hearing from Armando, as, as uh, Nick has alluded to there, no Armando with us, sadly, this week. But he is here no. in digital form, shall we say. He has put <laughs> together a few uh, uh, a few reads for us, so he'll be giving his insight into the stories that he is covering, including some great military stories, as always. So, let's have a look who's joining us in the glorious chat room this evening. Let's have a look. Oh, I've missed you a lot for the last two weeks, I'm not going to lie, especially after last week's... Um, <clears throat> party anyway moving swiftly on mazus hello to you our local listener mazus good to see you in there oscar as well oscar is in there nice and early richard adams he's complaining about the weather the same as we are at the moment <laughs> richard's in there we've got uh, lee davies hello to you lee yes i know lee i've got i've got the beer on the go i've got the summer ale with peach very nice indeed, I will say. Uh, who else have we got in there? Captain Cruz. Hello to you, Captain Cruz. Captain Cruz didn't like my comment on the DC or the MD11, but um, I, I'm right in what I said. You know what? You know, everyone knows I'm right. It was an ugly aircraft. Anyway, uh, Dirk S. Hello to you as well. Good to see you in there this evening. Uh, Bill. Hello to Bill. Good to see you in there, Bill. Hope you're having a nice evening. Uh, hobby time. Uh, is also joining us this evening, just scrolling down the list. Aaron P., hello to you, Aaron. And John Jester, our resident cargo king. John is in there. Uh, good to see you in there. And let me scroll down. Mark Priestley, hello to you, Mark. Good to see you in there as well in the chat room. And uh, welcome to everyone who's joined us this evening. It's good to see you all in there. Don't forget, if you're listening uh, to our glorious voices on a audio podcast you can find out how stunning we all look as hosts <laughs> over on youtube just search on youtube uh, for plain talking uk don't forget, forget to click subscribe and uh, to click the bell icon to know when uh, we are live and you can know obviously pop over and see just so just so well just how beautiful we all are in full HD. Basically okay, and, for radio. And, yeah, absolutely, 100%. <laughs> Shall we move on before I throw up everywhere? <laughs> anyway, we've got tons to get through on the show this week, including that uh, very special first part interview with uh, over, or over at uh, the museum in Edinburgh. So we've got that coming up. We've also got Caption This. It's back this week. You lot have been very excited about the Caption This this week. And, uh, yeah, it's time for commercial news. And also, not forgetting as well, we've got the results of the book competition, oh, yes. your chance to win a book. And hopefully Nev's got another one lined up uh, have, for this yes. week on the show. So your chance to win a book. So if everyone is ready, Indeed. let's do some commercial news. The captain has turned on the seatbelt light. Please take your seats and fasten your seatbelts. So first story uh, this week comes to us from aerotime.aero and uh, the headline, interesting one, this private jet captain had no valid pilot certificates when the Dassault Falcon crashed. There's a, quite an interesting picture of this actually. Um, 
minus landing gear. An investigation looking into why a Dassault Falcon 900EX private jet overran the runway during takeoff has found that the pilot in command did not hold any valid pilot certificates at the time of the accident. According to the National Transportation Safety Board, the NTSB, all the pilot in command certificates had been revoked by the Federal Aviation Authority two years prior to the crash due to his falsification of logbook entries and records. Oh, what? Dear. Oh, dear. On February the 13th, 2021, shortly before midday, the Falcon 900EX overran the end of the runway 28 right at Montgomery Gibbs Executive Airport, or Ma uh, Mike Yankee Foxtrot, at San Diego, California. The Falcon was due to travel to Ellison Onzuki Kona International Airport at Keihole in Hawaii. However, the plane failed to take off over around the departure end of the runway uh, by about 315 feet and struck a beam which sheared off all three landing gear. The airplane slid an additional 230 feet and came to rest on gravel overrun pad and the aircraft sustained substantial damage to the wings and fuselage and the fuel tanks ruptured but thankfully there was no fire. The report published by the NTSB uh, this month uh, said accompanying the pilot in command and first officer on board were two passengers and one flight attendant, neither of whom suffered injuries. The flight crew later stated that at rotation speed, the caption applied back pressure to the control yoke. However, the nose did not rotate to take off uh, uh, altitude. The captain attempted to rotate the aircraft one more time by relaxing the yoke, then pulling it back again with no change in the aircraft's attitude. He made the decision to reject the takeoff by retarding the thrust levers and applying maximum brakes, the report stated. A review performance of data indicated the flight crew attempted to take off with the aircraft at £2,975 over the maximum takeoff weight and centre of gravity close to the forward, most forward limits and an incorrect stabiliser trim setting. Well, he was doing quite well then at this point. Uh, the digital flight data recorder uh, data indicated that the captain attempted takeoff at a rotation speed 23 knots slower than the calculated rotation speed for the aircraft's maximum takeoff weight. Uh, takeoff performance showed the departure runway was 575 feet shorter than the distance required for takeoff at the aircraft's weight, the NTSB explained in its report. Additionally, the pilot in command had never held a type rating for the accident aircraft and had state, uh, started but not completed the training uh, in the accident airplane before the model, oh, before the accident happened. The captain stated he was employed directly by the owner of the aircraft and had previously flown other uh, aircraft for the same owner. Well, I wonder if he's still doing that now. Uh, the first officer, who was also employed directly by the owner, had accumulated around 16 hours of flight experience in the aircraft type, of the air and the aircraft was not authorised uh, to operate as pilot in command. The first officer wasn't um, allowed to operate as PIC. The NTSB determined the probable cause of the accident to be the flight crew's operation of the aircraft outside of the manufacturer's specified weight and balance limitations, with an improper trim setting which resulted in the aircraft's inability to rotate during the attempted takeoff. Contributing to the accident was the captain's lack of proper certification and the crew's lack of flight experience and the aircraft's make and the aircraft's eight make and model. And due to COVID restrictions, the NTSB did not travel to the accident and data was gathered by responding representatives from the FAA and the airplane manufacturer Dassault Aviation. Well, 
safe to say that if you don't know how to fly, you shouldn't really be flying the aircraft. I, I, I'm, I'm sorry, I can't get my head around this. How does this happen? I, I mean, somebody somewhere has obviously dropped a ball somewhere, haven't they? I mean, somebody hasn't done their appropriate checks. I mean, surely you don't just take a person's word for it. You check everything out. <laughs> well, you'd hope so. I mean, you have to remember as well, this isn't a small business jet. You know, the uh, the Falcon 900EX is a, is a, a reasonably good-sized um, private jet. You know, this this is... Well, what we were saying there, it's kind of like a, a, a half-sized 717. That's a multi-engine aircraft, isn't it? And, yeah. Um, uh, it must have made a real hash of, I know you said a bad word, a hash of the uh, takeoff calculations if he couldn't get a three-engine jet into the air based on the uh, runway that he had available. But uh, clearly, at the planning stage, he just didn't take account of uh, all, all the raw data uh, that he should have done, and um, let alone the fact that he's not licensed to fly the aircraft. That's almost a secondary point, isn't it, really? Um, but, um, yeah, I think um, there's going to be some uh, repercussions over this, definitely. Yeah, yeah, a falsified logbook or two as well, I think, will yeah. I have uh, generate a few questions here and there. Getting the sums wrong before he took off. Uh, yeah, I just, yeah. I, I, but as I say, every fibre of my being, you know, I mean, we, we, we're we lucky that we've spent a lot of time with pilots and we know what people have to go through to get their type ratings and the money, the sheer volume of money you need to sort of get there, and yet somehow... Ah, oh, I just I can't. This 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 would be like me being here at home with the you know the sim set up here, and flying this obviously flying the seven three uh, seven dash eight hundred, and then going up to into Ryanair and saying, well, I can fly it here at home, so I'll I'll fly it for <laughs> you. That's fine. I don't need training. I can do it at home. One one suspects that one uh, that the training you've had on your seven three. <laughs> Uh, on your simulator at home is perhaps more uh, comprehensive, shall we say, than what this particular individual has had. By the <laughs> I would also pictures. wonder that, um, you know, the FAA, you know, do uh, turn up sometimes to check, you know, correct yeah. operation and all the rest of it. Um, now, I don't know whether this applies to uh, business jet type flying rather than part 121, you know, commercial aircraft operation. Perhaps uh, Armando will be able to tell us about that. But um, mm. nonetheless, whichever way you look at it, whichever way you cut it, it's um, absolutely uh, reckless and uh, incompetent. And neg yeah. negligent is the word I was looking for. Negligent actually. is a great word, totally. yeah. yeah. Yes, yeah. I say somebody somewhere has, has done a terribly awful thing. I mean, not to mention the guy that's, you know, who isn't qualified is sort of, you know, parading around pretending essentially that he's a fully qualified pilot when clearly he's not um but yeah as you say it's not the thing is is the problem isn't just with him as you say nev is it i mean there's there's obviously an issue here with the checks that were taking place with this particular outfit um something that needs to be looked into urgently i would argue anyway i'm sure um i'm sure he will he's probably you know flipping burgers now somewhere lovely <laughs> Armando is up next with a story for us, and uh, this story is coming from Delta.com, and it's all about a certain story that I think, guys, when this news broke this week, I think our group chat did erupt with a, a few questions as to <laughs> who may be the pilot of this aircraft, but we obviously don't know. But uh, with the story, we'll hand things over to Armando.
We had a little bit of activity this last Wednesday morning at Charlotte Douglas International Airport when a Delta Airlines 717, that was Delta Airlines flights uh, 1092, was operating from Atlanta to Charlotte Douglas, actually made an emergency landing on the airport's runway 36 left. I listened to the recording of this and it seemed to be that uh, the crew had it perfectly under control. Uh, they were coming in on their initial approach to 36 left there at Charlotte Douglas, one of three runways there, and they got a gear unsafe indication. They broke off the approach as they were on their initial one. They broke off the approach, talked to the approach controller, said, hey, we're going to go out, run some checklists. Didn't actually take very long. It looked like they just kind of went into a, a left downwind, ran the checklist and called ATC and said, well, it is what it is. And, and we're coming back in. We're ready to come back in. Um, they did a uh, low pass. So the, down 36 left, the brand new air traffic control tower there at Charlotte Douglas. They were able to determine that the nose gear doors were open, but that the front nose gear the front nose gear the nose gear was uh, not deployed at all so they came around did their checklist and there was some great video taken by some of the passengers on board where it looked incredibly smooth the crew came in did a fantastic job uh, they brought it into three six left held the nose off and there wasn't even any grinding noise no sparks no nothing pretty uneventful landing where the passengers you could see that they almost didn't even know that the the emergency landing had happened. They ended up deploying the emergency slides out the front, so doors one left and right, or the service door on the right. All the passengers got out, so I believe it was 96 passengers, five crew, that's two pilots, three flight attendants. Everybody evacuated, no problem. They were all uh, out there on the runway. Runway 36 left at Charlotte Douglas is the most remote or the most removed from the terminal, so it seemed like it was a pretty good area to contain the emergency. Uh, contain all the people, yet still having two additional runways for takeoffs and landings there. There were actually minimal delays uh, at Charlotte Douglas. Um, there was a couple of delays, but pretty minimal considering there was an airplane on the runway. It took them, uh, the FAA, the NTSB, uh, they sent a Delta Airlines tweeted out that there was a recovery crew on the way. It took them about 10 hours to move the airplane off the runway. <clears throat> now we did check with our resident Acme pilot, I don't know if I'm making a connection there. It was not him. I actually have a couple other friends that fly Delta 717s. Um, not for Acme. For different, <laughs> I don't even know what I'm saying anymore. But uh, basically, nobody that we know was involved in the incident. And again, it just uh, seemed like very professional on the crew. The CEO of Delta Airlines put out a, a message uh, thanking the professionalism, the crew for their professionalism, and and uh, really, really well, well done. Turned into a big sort of non-event um so um yeah a little bit of excitement right here in my hometown charlotte douglas i mean you you i mean you were saying earlier like all jokes aside type thing it, it feels like national f wheels feel off fall off kind fall of, off. Kind of weird, yeah. doesn't it it's uh not not ideal shall we say but um yeah as i say ha handled really brilliantly as i guess you would is you, you would absolutely expect with an airline like that you know professionally dealt with um you know everybody's fine you know a win yeah i mean we've we're all seen i think that most people have seen the video that was on twitter um that was taken from inside the the cabin of the aircraft and Apart from the fact that some people were in the brace position, some people were, <laughs> I think, re some are reading books and and whatever. Yeah. It like like Nick said, Nick, it, you said it it, it it did seem very smooth and 
Yeah, very well handled. Yeah. And actually looking at the pictures of the aircraft as well, I kind of feel like they can, you know, get a trolley jack underneath that, pop the front <laughs> wheel out, they'd be good to go. And away they go, yeah. Uh, Mash is saying in the chat room, by the way, barely need the slide, you can just hop out of the door. <laughs> it's just nice and low, isn't it? Away you go. low rider yeah, edition. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely, indeed. Yeah, actually, think about the slide. Would don't think that the, with the slide deploy with the with the nose down that low nev because obviously you've got the bottom base of the door where the slide is wherever it, well, it would i suppose it would deploy wouldn't it, it would just yeah. be well i think the mechan i don't think i don't think it's its angle will be what decides whether it whether it'll deploy or not isn't it because it is a manual thing that you do with the door isn't it if you if it remains armed and you open the door then the slide mm. will deploy won't Have it them out on both sides because yeah. at, at that angle it's more it's not so much a slide and more a Sort of bouncy, bouncy castle. Bouncy castle, yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, yeah, indeed. But it's good. It's good that the obviously these guys were obviously um, good and got the aircraft down safely. And mm. um, yeah, it's good. It's good. Good. We like a good outcome when things like this we happen. Do. Absolutely. And I, it wouldn't surprise me if if um, Delta, you know, prop this up, release the gear, take it in the workshop, do a bit of patch up work, and this seven one seven will be back in the air within a month. <laughs> I mean, it may be a few layers of aluminium missing off the bottom. That's the only thing. The body filler, it'll be fine. Okay, right, fair enough. (laughs) So, Nev, you've got the next story all about um, all about uh, FedEx. Yes, the freighting business Uh, on SimpleFlying.com. It says that uh, FedEx is going to park or retire 29 aircraft during the next year. Uh, So on June the 20th, just gone, FedEx released its latest financial results, revealing ongoing demand weakness. Uh, The freighter mover reported that the performance witnessed in its most recent fiscal quarter was due to both demand weakness and cost inflation. Part of the company's plan to deal with this is to reduce its costs and park a portion of its fleet. Uh, The pandemic highlighted the importance of robust and reliable supply chains. This resulted in numerous entities getting into or boosting their presence in the air cargo market. So, for example, Air Canada retired its passenger uh, Boeing 737-300ERs and converted some of them into freighters. The airline also ordered new freighters directly from Boeing. As recently as February of last year, FedEx had been mulling a large freighter order with Boeing or Airbus. And of course, the shift in the market may have put a hold on this potentially major deal. Indeed, as supply chains are slowly slowly restored and passenger aircraft fill the skies once again, air cargo capacity in the bellies of these jets is back. In fact, in uh, May 2023, a report by IATA notes that the uptick in belly capacity has resulted in a 2.3% decline in freight capacity. Additionally, after two and a half years of continuous freighter operations, activity in this category ceased in March. FedEx is experiencing the shift in market demand firsthand. In its recently uh, quarterly report, uh, the firm stated that FedEx Express continues to implement volume-related and structural cost reduction actions, including further reductions in flight hours and the early retirement of certain aircraft and related assets to mitigate the negative effect of ongoing demand weakness. Uh, According to Freight Waves, FedEx will reduce its operating costs by removing 29 aircraft from its fleet during the next year. This will see aircraft either permanently retired or temporarily stored. 
This move goes hand in hand with the operator's recent reduction in global flight hours. Providing more dealer detail about the plan, uh, FedEx's CEO Raj Subramaniam uh, stated that 20 aircraft will be parked over the next year, whilst an additional nine MD-11 freighters will be permanently retired. This builds on the company's recent aircraft retirement actions, which have already seen the retirement of these uh, 18 aircraft over the past year. 12 MD-11s, four Boeing 757-200s, and two Airbus A300-600s. Uh, currently, uh, FedEx has uh, 46 MD-11s, but these will be phased out by around 2027 or 28. Uh, despite numerous older freighters being grounded or retired, the FedEx mainline fleet will still see some growth. This is due to existing orders placed with Boeing in 2018, and FedEx will continue to take delivery of the new factory-built 767s and 777 freighters with chaviation.com, noting that the company is expecting 23 more 777 freighters and 6 more 767 freighters. So that's, uh, that's quite a cutback, isn't it, if you think about it, in terms of uh, uh, parking these aircraft or, or scrapping Indeed. them all together. Indeed. Now, Carlos, I've, I've got to ask the question here. Why do you hate this aircraft so much? What, the DC-10? It's blooming ugly. It's like, some, <laughs> it's like someone got, you know, someone designed an aircraft, like a twin-engine aircraft, and then oh. thought, God, we've got a third engine here. What are we going to do with this third? I'll tell you what we'll do. We'll wang it on the tail, but we'll not mount it in flush with the fuselage. We'll just sling it on the on the uh, you know the vertical tail fin, and it will look nice. Well, it doesn't. It looks blooming awful. And let's not forget, they had a lot of trouble, as Nev knows very well as well, with the original DC-10 when uh, when McDonnell Douglas first built these aircraft. And they had a lot of lot of issues with the uh, aircraft back then. So you, you're saying you're saying all this and like you know they just wang it into the fin and all that kind of thing. But I mean I'm I'm looking at that <laughs> aircraft and it doesn't look any worse to me than the the TriStar. I'm sorry. Uh, oh, 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 oh dear. Oh dear. But it, it doesn't look oh, any do different. It doesn't do look any different. I mean the only thing is is that is that 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 third engine is maybe a tiny little bit lower. And that's literally it. Otherwise, it's practically identical. Can we just can we just look for a minute here? The TriStar here, beautiful engine number two here, blended in beautifully with the fuselage. Yeah, all right, okay. So it's but missing it's, all... it's it's missing a piece of plastic or that. body kit. That's all that. it's missing. It's just mid it's just a plastic body kit that it's missing. That's the only. Otherwise, it's essentially <laughs> engine. It just looks the same. Well, I think that's Mr. It's been nice working with you, Madeline. Hasn't it been lovely? It's an unusual way to hand in your notes, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> it, is, it is, it's interesting, though. It's inter interesting, though, to see that um, that FedEx has still got the 300s, the, the A300s, because they, yeah. they were like, they were the, um, weren't the 300s, Nev, the, the only Airbuses that had the uh, control yokes rather than side sticks. Yes, uh, yeah. and the A310s, although I'm not sure about the freighter versions, whether there were any freighter versions of the A310s. But, um, yeah, of course, uh, DHL still operate the A300s. I see them quite often at Heathrow. Mm. Yeah. Out, yeah. So, yeah. 
If you if you ever get woken up or ever ever get up in the early hours of the morning, Matt, and you hear an aircraft over <laughs> us here, because it does happen. Right. Trust me. If you look on, if you get the Flight Radar 24 app on your phone, have a look. It will be either a FedEx or a DHL aircraft going over right. here. Right? Okay. All right. Yeah. Fair enough. Yeah. I mean, well, you may not. It won't be a TriStar because there aren't any flying. <laughs> uh, there's one. There's <laughs> that was, one. That was the one. Okay. There's one. Right. There's one. Lovely. Okay. All right. Then. Anyway, okay. moving swiftly yeah, on to absolutely. that with the next story, and uh, this is actually a bit more of a somber story. Actually, yeah. this. One. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, serious voice on for this one, really. It's an, it, it really is an awful story. But actually, we we wouldn't we would perhaps normally sort of shy away from this. But um, I, I think it really important that we that we sort of talk about this really, um, especially as uh, it's sort of Mental Health Week here in the UK as well. So, uh, Texas airport worker dies after being sucked into Delta plane engine. A 27-year-old airport employee has died after being sucked into a passenger air. Uh, engine in San Antonio in Texas. The worker was ingested into the engine of a Delta plane that had just landed on Friday night, officials say. The death sparked concerns about safety procedures, but an investigation was called off after a medical examiner ruled he took his own life. Uh, there was no operational safety issues with either the airplane or the airport, officials ruled on Monday. The National Transportation Safety Board, the NTSB, had had initially opened an investigation into the cause of death but closed it on Monday after the Bexar County Medical Examiner's officer Office ruled on the cause of death. From our initial investigation this incident was unrelated to Unify's operational processes, uh, safety procedures and policies said uh, Unify Aviation, the ground crew operations company where the company employee worked. A Delta spokesperson said the airline was heartbroken to grieve the loss of an aviation family member's life. Our hearts and full support are with their family, friends and loved ones at this difficult time. Grief counsellors are being offered to support uh, employees, officials told CBS News. The BBC's US partner. Now this is an awful, awful story really. Um, one thing I just want to mention, as I say, I mean, you know, it is tough for everyone out there at the moment and we all deal with, with things very, very differently. Um, and if you are struggling, um, there are lots of places you can go uh, to get help. If you're in uh, Canada or the US, you can just dial 911. Uh, you can contact the US National uh, Suicide Prevention Lifeline on one 800 Two seven three eight two five five, or the crisis test line by texting home to seven four one seven four one. That's in the US. Um, you can also in the US call one eight hundred six six eight six eight six eight eight. Here in the UK, of course, you can call uh, the Samaritans. The number for that is one one six one two three. Lots of ways, uh, and if you need help. Um, Hey, um, you know, if it helps you, reach out to to, to me via the PTUK email if uh, you, you you need somebody to talk to. Um, uh, that's the thing. That's my takeaway from this. I mean, obviously, I'm sad for the people, you know, on this aircraft that may have witnessed this because obviously that's going to leave uh, a, a very serious mark. Obviously, that's not something you're going to forget, is it? Something as awful as that. Um, 
but also I, I feel I feel very sad that this person you know felt that he got nobody to turn to and that's that's really my takeaway from that story is that somebody's you know just felt that they were literally on their own and, and had nowhere to turn to so that's mm. really why I wanted to share um, the uh, the details of uh, if you need help um, how to how to get in touch um, but to obviously from all of us here uh, at PT UK um, you know our thoughts go out to to the families and friends and indeed the people on the aircraft who uh, will no doubt be aware of uh, of uh, what happened here but uh, I think we probably don't need to talk about that much more we'll probably leave that no. on there if that's okay but we're all here as a team for yep. everyone absolutely. we're always here and the yep. whatsapp number is there for a good reason yep. absolutely you can get directly to Carlos now yes yeah. you can yes. tell him how rubbish the TriStar is if you like that'll go down well <laughs> <laughs> yes, and then get immediately blocked. Oh, oh. <laughs> anyway, moving swiftly on, Nick, you've got uh, the next story, and I must admit, I don't know, was it you, was it you who found this story, Nick? Uh, yes, I think it was. Because yeah, I, th th this is just bizarre. Yeah, yeah. We're we're gonna have a little chat about this one at the end. So it comes from the DCist dot com. Um, Dulles Airport will rehab some of its famous people movers from the nineteen sixties. Oh. Uh, and Matt, I don't know if you can uh, you can pop up some pictures. So I, I think it's quite interesting for everybody in uh, who's watching on YouTube. You can see what these things look like. Um, so I'm going to sort of attempt to describe them as Bizarre. looking a bit like a sort of cross between a a coach and a truck trailer, but with windows in. It looks like it looks like a it looks like a train to me, but with like yeah, actually, like yeah, truck truck wheels on it. You know, yes, it's sort of rather rather than rail wheels. <clears throat> so the plane makes a variation of a mobile lounge. They are similar in appearance to mobile lounges, but can raise themselves to mate directly with an aircraft. This allows passengers to deplane directly aboard and be carried to the main terminal. The famous people mover and plane mate vehicles at Dulles Airport are getting a costly facelift. The mobile lounge people movers get airport passengers from the main terminal to Concourse D, which is not connected to the aerotrain. The plane mates act like a mobile jet bridge taking passengers right up to the door of the parked planes. Dulles was created at the peak of the jet age when airports were even bigger and were getting bigger and passengers no longer walked up a staircase to a propeller plane. Dulles architect Aero Saarinen, who also did the TWA flight centre at JFK, saw mobile lounges as a convenient way to shorten walks from ticket counters to far off planes. A Metropolitan Washington Airports Authority Committee approved a $16 million uh, to completely rehabilitate two of the 60-plus-year-old vehicles. That renovation will require a complete ground-up re-engineer and design of a new vehicle on the old chassis and will take about three years. If airport officials are pleased with the renovations, and I should hope they are at $16 million, from the Brookville Equipment Corporation, they'll have to vote on whether or not to fix the rest of the 18 mobile lounges and 29 plane mate vehicles over the next six years. That project is slated to cost $160 million in total. Uh, MWAA first put it out for procurement before the pandemic, but now costs have gotten higher. Well, there's a surprise, thanks to specialized components. Manufacturers, funnily enough, aren't building mobile lounges anymore as most airports have moved to train-based transportation between concourses. 
The original manufacturer no longer supports the vehicles either. Board members were mixed on the appeal of the lounges. One said that mobile lounges are not the most popular feature of Dulles, while another said they find the user experience to be very good. The refurbished vehicles will have another 20 years of useful life, and after that, the airport authorities will find alternative transportation. One possible option is the expansion of the automated aero train, which Dulles launched to most concourses in 2010. So, I have a question for you, Mr. Smith. Oh, hello. As a as a former coach driver, <laughs> how many how many people would you get on a coach? Uh, well, it depends on the coach, um, but it can be anything. Uh, so, a double decker will quite often hold around about 130 passengers, okay, so including uh, standing. If it's one of the bendy bus things, I think it's about 80 to 90, something like that. And uh, how much would one of those set you back? Oh, um, if you bought a posh new one with like aircon and all the bells and whistles, you're probably looking at between three hundred thousand and four hundred thousand pounds, something like so, that. So not sixteen million. No, 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 no. So no you could buy indeed. a lot of coaches instead of buying. I mean, one of I mean, to be fair, looking at the picture, it is quite spacious in there. I do think they could have done more if they if they are. They could have put more seating in. Well, if, yeah, there's an awful lot of space in the middle there. I guess you could stand up, and there's lots of sort of hand guardrails and all that kind of thing. A lot large part of me kind of likes this though i quite like the idea of <laughs> of getting on the vehicle that takes you literally right up to and then yeah. lifts itself up to never never mind all these stairs and all that kind of thing or air bridges you just go to, it takes you to the aircraft lifts itself up and then you get straight onto the aircraft yeah, i actually really is, is cool. i find that quite exciting i i, I, I have to say I... though that the, when i went on one for the first time oh, wow. if you're not prepared Ooh. for the experience it is extremely odd yeah. because uh you are obviously taxiing in inverted commas in a lounge in the same space <laughs> as these seven six sevens triple sevens and goodness knows what else so the first time i went on one at dallas uh, sorry dallas airport it was really shocking for me i have to say i'm thinking i hope this fellow knows what he's doing but he did have his motorola you know transceiver with him oh, so that's right. he was talking to the ground control yeah. or the ramp frequency i presume so they raise um, up and down there but uh, it was just um it was not something I was expecting. I and they say. and they lift up, don't they? Never. It literally, they do, yes. of, it literally yeah, docks absolutely. with the with the, yeah. the the plane, doesn't it? Yeah. So I've only been on one. Uh, I think it's just once actually when we went out to the aircraft. But uh, mm. I mean, really interesting way of getting around. But you are really mixing it with the uh, the heavy jets um, in in the ramp area, which was a bit disconcerting, I have to say. <laughs> I mean, if you're at Luton or Stansted, uh, where you know where some of these gates are so far away, I mean, actually, I think this is quite a cool way to sort of get to the other end of the of the terminal um, to then sort of like literally get on the. I mean, yes. they, they still have variants of these, don't they? With uh, oh, oh, Captain Cruz is saying Neville Bounds, they could easily run over a regional jet and crush it. To be fair. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that sounds about right. Oh, um, and uh, Aaron P, I have to f absolutely agree with you, Aaron. Uh, they wallow around and make me feel seasick. Oh, really? Yes. Oh my goodness! Suspension? Well, it's sort of very, well, very air soft like, and all that. Very kind of thing, much yeah. so. Yeah, not not yeah. a nice experience. I, I don't think. I have to say, I mean, like something Jerry Anderson would have come up. With. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh God! <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Thunderbirds, I'll go. Um, there, there is the um, these these vehicles 
I mean, they do have variants of these even here in the UK where we've used special assistance to get my mum on, on the aircraft. Quite often, these, these sort of like pods, if you like, uh, they're very sort of strange. They're not that big. Uh, they're fairly big. You'd be amazed yeah. how big they are. Um, and they, said. Well, quite indeed. And that, and they go, but I mean, they're quite weird, as you say. Although the the ride, I guess, because they're newer, um, but the ride's quite cool, as I say. And that is one of the coolest things, where it's literally lifted you up to to like the rear gate, um, or the rear door. Sorry, <laughs> usually on the other side, um, and then out 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 you get and straight onto the aircraft, because it does all the lifting and everything for you, which is quite kind. The cool. guest in the chat room says, "I wonder if someone's ever turned one of these into a drag racer." <laughs> <laughs> oh, you could turn it into a nice that, mobile home. It, you could have a good do you know what? That's a good idea. Mm. Can you, you imagine that these... I mean, can you imagine that on the M25? <laughs> well, I mean, it's a bit wider than most lanes on the M25. I think it would be going faster than most traffic. Most traffic, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, that's true. Oh, uh, good lord! Anyway, moving on. Uh, before. I go and buy one of those. Oh. It's uh, on the AINonline.com, and uh, the Department of Transport finds planning lacking to address the ATC staffing. Well, they should come and see Matt Smith. He'd love to go and work as an ATC controller. <laughs> uh, the National Air Traffic Controllers Association stepped up its call for the FAA to fully staff air traffic control facilities, citing a recent Transportation Inspector General report that found the agency lacks a plan to address shortages. Department of Transportation officer... Uh, faces uh, controller staffing challenges as air traffic control operations return to pre-pandemic levels at critical facilities found that the lack of fully certified controllers and operational supervisors and traffic management coordinators pose a potential risk to air traffic operations. The Department of Transport found that the managers interviewed at 16 of 17 facilities felt their locations were not adequately staffed. Many controllers have been working uh, mandatory overtime and six-day work weeks to cover shortages. And further, the FAA has made limit, uh, limited efforts to ensure adequate controller staffing and that it lacks a plan to address the issues. The agency also says it has yet to implement a standardised scheduling tool to optimise controller scheduling practices at the facilities and the FAA officials disagree on how to account for trainees when determining staffing numbers, the DOT and OIG added. Uh, NACTA maintained the report echoed that it, uh, what it has been saying for years, that there are currently 1,200 fewer fully certified controllers today compared with 10 years ago. NACTA President Rich Santa FAA's, uh, said that FAA's flawed staffing model and inconsistent hiring have resulted in new hires not keeping pace with attrition over the past decades. Uh, the status quo is no longer sustainable, he said. The FAA's air traffic organisation partnered with NACTA to collaboratively determine the number of fully certified controllers needed to be fully operational uh, statutory and contractual requirements. Uh, the collaborative workshop uh, work group found that uh, 14,335 CPCs are required to meet the FAA's requirements compared with 12,062 uh, that FAA's model suggests. NACTA was pleased that the House FAA bill would require the FAA to base its staffing targets on the CR. 
WG findings. Uh, the FAA should, FAA should do so without the need for congressional intervention and the Congress should not require further study into issues, Santa said. Now, I don't think when I've looked on the, because um, I do look at them every now and again, on the websites, especially for NATS here in the UK and the Air Traffic Control Services here, um, there's occasionally, but not all the time, I think their staffing levels here in the UK are kind of fairly well in regards to air traffic control. I mean, we'd have to speak to our our very good friend over at Heathrow, I think, to find out whether uh, it is, you know, whether they do have staffing shortages. But mm. um, but obviously in the US we have to remember that there's like, you know, sort of we've got, what, four or five major airports here in the UK, whereas over in the US there's, there's probably 400 million uh, airports to staff over there. I mean, I mean, I guess it's like any industry involving aviation at the moment. You know, there's a uh, there's a pilot shortage, there's a ground crew shortage. Uh, it kind of makes sense that there's going to be, um, you know, sort of ATC shortages as well, as you say. And I mean, these are people who are, are retiring, you know, and the, and the people aren't there to like, you know, there aren't the people aren't coming through the system. I mean, it's not a a five minute job to get somebody up to speed oh, to no. be uh, an air traffic controller. It is one of the most um, I mean, I've been lucky enough to be to have gone to Heathrow Tower a couple of times. I think, um, um, you know, Nev and Carlos, you, you've both both been there as well. It is just mind-boggling, isn't it? The amount of information that they're they're juggling and processing, like all you know, you need to be a special kind of person to to do that job. Um, yeah, because you are basically dealing with thousands of people's lives on mm, a daily basis. Absolutely, and I mean, you know, obviously the pilot is ultimately responsible for getting it on the ground and all that kind of thing but you have the responsibility of making sure that they have plenty of space to do it in um you know that that's the thing there uh, any thoughts nev well i'm surprised actually you really would have thought that there'd be plenty of qualified people that would be around but clearly you know it's one of those things isn't it you know it's it's a big country uh, yeah and a lot of regional and small airports as mm. well as the big stuff as well so uh, yeah Quite a long period of time involved in in actually becoming qualified as well i, I looked yeah. into this about 15 years ago as a as a possible career change and uh yeah the the amount of sort of hoops that you have to go through um not only in terms of the training um, but also the number of exams that you have to do and then the potential that you could train for a, a fairly significant amount of time and then actually not meet the, the necessary standards. Um, mm. it's, it's, it's necessarily quite an onerous process to go through. Um, and as you said earlier, Matt, you know, this is not for everyone. It, it no. takes a, a very uh, particular kind of mindset, I think, to be able to do this type of work. Yeah, agreed. Hmm. Have to keep our eyes open uh, for more about training. We have to try and get someone on to talk about um, how in depth the training process is, perhaps for um, for ATC. Well, in the UK here, anyway. We'll, we'll we'll put our feelers out. See if we can get someone to come on the show. Nev, you have got uh, the next uh, story, and it's uh, this time it's not BA having data breaches. Oh dear, this is a bit of a bee in my bonnet, this is, data breaches, it's on bleepingcomputer.com, that tells you all you need to know about this story, I think. <laughs> Uh, American Airlines and Southwest Airlines, two of the largest airlines in the world, disclosed data breaches on Friday, 
caused by the hack of Pilot Credentials, a third-party vendor that manages multiple airline pilots, applications and recruitment portals. Both airlines were informed of the Pilot Credentials incident on the 3rd of May, which was limited solely to the systems of the third-party vendor, with no compromise or impact on the airline's own networks or systems. All right, that's okay then. I'm serious still. Um, an, an, an unauthorized individual gained access to pilot credential systems on April the 30th and stole documents containing information provided by certain applicants in the pilot and cadet uh, hiring process. According to breach notifications filed on Friday with Maine's Office of the Attorney General, American Airlines said that the data breach affected 5,745 pilots and applicants, while Southwest reported a total of 3,009. Uh, our investigation determined that the data involved contained some of your personal information, such as your name and social security number, driver license number, passport number, date of birth, airman certificate number, and yeah. other government-issued identification numbers, American Airlines revealed. Although no evidence indicating that the pilot's personal information was specifically targeted or exploited for fraudulent or identity theft purposes were found, the airlines will from now on direct all pilot and cadet applications to self-managed internal, portal, self internal portals. We're no longer using the, uh, utilizing the vendor and moving forward pilot applications are being directed to an internal portal managed by Southwest, uh, the airline said. Both American Airlines and Southwest Airlines have also notified relevant law enforcement authorities of the breaches and are fully cooperating with their ongoing investigation into the matter. Uh, uh, and uh, this is uh, American Airlines, in fact, have been hit by other breaches uh, in recent years, and this, disclo this disclosure comes after American Airlines said that another data breach in September 22 that impacted over 1,708 American Airlines customers and team members following a 2000 and July 2022 phishing attack that led to the compromise of a number of employee uh, email accounts. Well... This is. It's happen. not ideal, is it? <laughs> it's oh, honestly, it's. Um, I mean, these things happen, and it's happened to British Airways. It's happened to all sorts of people. Um, but just going back to the story about the uh, the Falcon Trijet and the unqualified pilot. This does have the potential doesn't it to with this kind of data breach for other people to get hold of information that they could use themselves mm. uh, for identity purposes and all kinds of things i'm not i don't think it happened in this case mm. it certainly has the potential for it doesn't it it's just incredibly worrying this kind of stuff well as you say that it and it's very personal data that they've got their hands on to i mean things like government ids and all that kind of thing you know you've got the potential there as you say to sort of genuinely you know pretend you're someone else and that yeah. that that's the issue isn't it but it, it's so difficult isn't it because we are being encouraged to move all of our lives online um and it's just like i i i, I don't know I, you know i don't know how we we stop it i mean it, it's is it um is it just because 
I don't know. Do, does there need to be more sanctions in place for for the people who are holding our data? Um, you know, to to make sure that they are spending the money on keeping their systems protected and updated and and all that kind of thing. Because the you know most of these data breaches are usually as a result of some security flaw that's been discovered in the software. Yes, and of course they won't discover it until it happens very until often because uh, it, yeah. there are clever. Young mm. teenage people probably doing this from their bedroom. Mm. You know? um, so, uh, yeah, it's absolutely horrific. But uh, just an example, again, of, of no matter how careful you are with your data, you just never know yeah. uh, what can happen with these large organisations. Yeah. You see all these companies and stuff online and on my adverts, you see on TV and online for, for protect your, you know, protect this, protect your PC, protect this and that and the other pay us this so much a month blah 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 but it still happens mm. I did laugh the other day um, American Express phoned me up to ask me a question about something on the credit card and they said to me Mr Bounds uh, we're going to take you through security now I'm going I don't think so I'm gonna take <laughs> you through security because mm. you phoned me and yeah, in fact, absolutely. I'm not, not gonna answer any more of your questions uh, so I put the phone down yeah. now as it turned out it was them but you just don't know. No, do you, you don't know. But and this this is the yeah. thing, isn't it? They're, that that's the problem. And th this this sort of highlights the this very problem, isn't it? You know how you how you've got into this, Nev? Because it's like it's like literally. So I'm receiving a phone call from a number that I don't recognise, or it might be withheld, or any of the above. And they send hello, it's such and such from American Express. Now, I mean, I've had calls where they say, oh hello, I'd like to talk to you about your nationwide account, please. And you go, well, I don't have a nationwide account, so you can go away. <laughs> um, but that's Sort of thing but as you say if they struck if they sort of strike gold and sort of say hello we'd like to talk to you about your monzo account or something like that uh do, do you know what i mean and you say like so american express express card and stuff i do think there needs to be um uh, I mean, in fact, actually, I did. I, I think it was when I used to bank with NatWest of all places, and I had a similar experience to what you're referring to there, Nev. And actually, what I ended up doing was they said to me, "Go and get your card, ring the number on the back, and then they'll put you through to me." And I thought, now that makes sense because you've called the number that's on your card that you know is correct because obviously it's on the back of your your card and all that kind of thing but as you say i i do think these companies as you and as nev you've highlighted there i mean these companies do need to be a little bit more um you know sort of we're being expected to be more tech savvy and more um you know security savvy but they need to do the same so yep. yeah yeah uk where we care about your data <laughs> yeah absolutely. <laughs> yeah fortunately we don't really hold anybody's data so no we don't no, 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 absolutely no, true true <laughs> you know indeed right matt you've got uh, a next story and i must admit when i saw this one on the list i thought it gave me many good ideas oh goodness me i'm i'm, I'm <laughs> terrified for your wife on her behalf already uh it's uh, simpleflying.com is the website uh, try and get through this as quickly as we can uh a british entrepreneur buys x united airlines boeing 737-200 for 5k and turns it into a stunning airbnb if you had the chance to spend 5k uh on something you like what would you spend it on carlos would absolutely do 
this. Maybe a first-class ticket to an exotic destination. What about a retired Boeing 737-200? That's exactly what British entrepreneur Stephen Northam decided to do when he bought an ex-United Airlines Boeing 737-200 and turned it into the perfect Airbnb for geeks and travellers looking for a one-of-a-kind experience. Of course, moving the aircraft to its current location in the heart of the UK's Hampshire countryside and turning it into a dreamy accommodation required more investment than just that. According to Mr Northam, £3,000 was needed to relocate the Boeing 737, while £15,000 was invested in the restoration. I'm going to try and pop you some pictures up while I uh, go through the rest of the story. The magic begins even before accessing one of its uh, accessing this one-of-a-kind space. Indeed, guests will board the plane using actual airport stairs. Uh, I say, Gent Niffer would be very excited about that. Uh, Onboard on customers will find three beds, multiple TVs, an Xbox, and a real flight simulator with a 49-inch curved screen in the original cockpit. That would very much excite oh, my word. Uh, a certain Mr. <laughs> uh, uh, Mr. Stebbings there. Well, there are some pictures of the cockpit. I'll show you that in a moment. Additionally, um. the 737 features a shower, a small kitchen and a toilet besides plenty of storage for luggage. The best part is that nobody will check the weight and size of it before boarding. How often do you hear about entrepreneurs who buy retired aircraft and convert them into Airbnbs? Probably not that much. Mr. Northam's creation caught the interest of many who wanted to know more about his creative idea. Featured in an episode of George Clark's Amazing Spaces at a program here in the UK on Channel 4 usually. Mr Northam explains how everything started when the Boeing 737 was put up for the auction site of uh, Chichester College uh, in the UK where it served as a training facility. I think this is the photograph that Carlos is going to get very excited about and we are literally looking at a giant screen that's been fitted in the cockpit there and it does genuinely look the only thing I would have done is put another two screens either side just so that it yeah, looked like you've got yeah. the uh, look like you've got the side windows as well. As if following the front section, if, as if owning the front section of the fuselage of a Boeing 737 and turning it into an Airbnb was not enough, Mr. Northam also managed to take possession of two engine cowlings. Uh, his creative mind led him to <laughs> turn one of them into a hot tub. As you do. The other one was tilted upwards a cu- and a comfortable seating area was built in so that guests could get the feeling of being seated inside the engine. Over three months during uh, the summer of 2022, Mr. Northern owned one of the fir- very first Boeing 737s ever to, uh, uh, t- ever to be ever from a knackered piece of aviation history. I'm sorry, that doesn't read right into the Airbnb of your dream. This 737 was one of the classics, the first iteration of the incredibly successful narrowbody aircraft. Indeed, it's almost 55 years old today uh, and originally entered into service in September 1968 for United Airlines with registration November 9028 Union. After United 
United. It flew for another airline, including uh, Euralair and Air Berlin, until it retired with Air Mediterranean in May 2002. According to data retrieved by CH Aviation, the aircraft has 69,800 hours under its wings. It was used predominantly for short-haul hops as its average stage length of one hour and 37 minutes. I absolutely bloomin' love this. It's quite quirky, isn't it? It's a really it's quirky. Yeah, it yeah. looks it looks good. I love the fact that that the guys kept a lot of the internal features in the air in the aircraft, you know, with the overhead bins and also the um, the passenger you know service units above the head with the lights and everything on. Yeah, looks it looks so well done. And keep, keeping the seats in as well, I think you know, and and using them, you know, like around the tables and all that kind of thing. I just think it's really, I just think it's brilliant. It's been nicely done. It's been nicely. Done. I, I would, I would absolutely go and stay here as an Airbnb. I fear it might be an expensive Airbnb. I'm just saying. Don't care. <laughs> Fair enough. Righty ho. <laughs> But it has given me an idea, you know. There's there's so many of these kicking around these uh, fuselage bits and pieces, and especially with the uh, the old classics um, that have been retired for quite some time now. That you know, I, I was looking outside the garden. I thought, do you know that would that would fit out there? Would it? Right. Okay. Yes. A uh, wrapper. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Try it, Carlos. Uh, I mean, it can. It, it's only going to go one of two ways, isn't it? Let's be honest. Emma. You'll either be living in it. <laughs> Can I have a aircraft fuselage in the garden? Oh, no! That, right. You didn't. You didn't hear that, did you? No, no, no. She said. She said no. Fox trot ox Oscar off. I believe was. She said no in a polite way. Did she? Um, Very good. Okay. Now we're going to uh, leave it there for the commercial uh, stories this week. And Nev, we've got uh, a really, really special piece to share with everyone, haven't we? Yes. Well, you remember a few weeks ago, Carlos and I were in Edinburgh. Uh, and went to the Museum of Flight at East Fortune. We've been bringing you various bits of segments from the aircraft that we visited over the uh, uh, during the day there, which was really fascinating. Great collection there. But uh, we also had the opportunity of uh, speaking with Ian Brown, who's the curator of the museum. And I thought I'd play this to you in its entirety. We've actually got two parts of it, but this first part is about 30 minutes long. But I think it's worth playing it out because uh, Ian's inside encyclopedic knowledge is absolutely fascinating. So let's go up to uh, East Fortune where we'll join Carlos. So you join me here in uh, the hangar with one of the most iconic aircraft I think uh, that we get to see here on the show, the Concorde. And I'm here with Ian who's the curator here at the museum. Ian, welcome onto the show. Thank you. So Ian, tell us a bit about yourself. What's, uh, what's your job here at the museum? Uh, well, I'm the curator here at the museum, um, which means I get, get to work with this fantastic collection. Um, the, most of what I do is the, the acquisitions, so it's going out and, and adding to the collection, um, whether it's full-size aircraft or your pilot's clothing or <clears throat> all, all manner of stuff. Um, but also the interpretation of it, so put the things on display, writing the labels, um, working out what stories we want to tell and, and how to tell it, and um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's the dream job, basically. So how, how did the uh, aviation start with you? Is it a, a passion just for aviation and you thought one day, I'll, I'm going to work at the Aviation Museum, that's your dream job? Well, <laughs> for many of a, a certain age like myself, um, there's one company to blame, and that's Airfix. 
<laughs> um, it's the you're getting an airfix model as a kid, and the the kind of interest in aviation grew from that because it's it's there's no sort of family connections really. Um, so yeah, it was just getting it as a as a birthday present, and uh, it got my interest in the Second World War, and I, you know did a lot of reading and and started sort of researching local history during the war and things like that. Um, and then. Uh, you know, wanted to kind of get into, do something in that subject. And I thought, well, that is basically one of two things. It's either become an archivist or a museum curator. And I thought, well, if you're an archivist, all you do is pull out documents from other people to do the research. And that didn't really sound like fun. So I thought, well, if you're a museum curator, you get to work with, you know, the real objects that were there at great moments in history. Um, and I thought, yeah, that sounds like the job for me. And um, so, yeah, I went and did a history degree um, worked um, in one of our sister organisations um, for a few years and then this job came up and I was lucky enough to get it. So how long have you been working for the museum now? Uh, so I've, I've been here for 18 years. Um, I worked uh, front of house staff for six years before that, um, which uh, I think more curators should do that. So it's great. To, it gives you an opportunity to see what the public enjoy and what they don't enjoy and you're getting to to work with the public um, before you kind of ensconce yourself behind the scenes working in, in object stores all the time. But um, yeah, I've, I've, I I can still remember one of the first things I did when I started in post was uh, helping fit some of the seats into back into Concord um, just before I went on display. Uh, so, but yeah, that's a few years ago now. So we're obviously sitting here, literally underneath the Concord here, the BA Concord. Uh, which particular Concorde is, is this that we're sitting under now? So yeah, th this is uh, Alpha, or Bravo Oscar Alpha Alpha, um, which has the distinction it was the first Concorde into commercial passenger service. So um, for those that, that remember back in, in the 70s, um, when Concorde entered commercial service, there was a simultaneous takeoff from Heathrow and Charles de Gaulle um, so their France flight um, was flying to Rio, the BA flight was flying to Bahrain. Um, so that British Airways flight um, was Alpha Alpha. So because it was to um, Bahrain rather than Rio, it landed first. Um, so we claim the distinction of this was the, the first commercial Concorde flight. So I suppose it begs the question, especially for the listeners who, who are watching, what did it take to, I mean, did, did, did they, BA, come up to you and say, we've got a Concorde, you know, we're, we're retiring it from service, would you like it in your museum? Or was it a case of you had to um, go out and try and obtain it yourself? Um, well, I mean, when they announced the fleet was retiring, um, they, um, they basically advertised and said any interested organisation get in touch. Um, and I mean, it was a quite a lengthy process obviously having to to um, put bids together and demonstrate that um, I, mean, I think there was I can't remember the numbers I think it was something like 400 museums worldwide wow. um, uh, you know, bid for the um, seven British Airways Concords so you know it, it was a fierce competition um, that we were very lucky here that we were one of the museums chosen to 
to receive one. I think the fact that um, the, the the man who led the team that certainly designed the 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 beautiful but complex wing design um, was from um, Midlothian in Scotland. And a lot of the, the early testing flights, you're looking at the effects of the sonic boom. A lot of that was done from Prestwick up the west coast of Scotland um, and elsewhere as well. But you know, a, a lot of the pilot training flights were done at Prestwick as well. So, so there was a strong Scottish story there, which um, with um, backing from the Scottish Parliament, I think you know, tipped the, the case in our favour. But yeah, we were one of the very lucky few. <laughs> I say very lucky. So in regards to the aircraft, obviously where it's sitting now, you've got, um, am I right in thinking you have a, uh, an active runway here? On um, the, the, the runways aren't in use as such. There's, there's a microlight school that uses um, one of the, the post-war extensions. Um, the, you can use the runways, but you have to get permission from the farmer. Um, so it's, it's not a, a licensed yeah. runway as, as such. I suppose the question is, how did you get this Concorde here? Well, yeah, uh, well, it, it, as part of the, um, the the bidding process, when, when we were notified that we were going to, to receive a Concorde, um, the, the quite intense work then went up a notch. Um, the, there was a lot of work done to look at what was involved in flying Concorde in, um, and it would have been possible. We'd, we'd have had to, I mean, the core the runway and, looked at it structurally, it would have needed to be resurfaced, but um, it was just within the, the minimum landing distance for for a, an unladen Concorde. Um, so it was a possibility. In the end, the aircraft that were allocated was one of the two that didn't get the modifications um, after the Paris crash, so you didn't get the Kevlar yeah. fuel tank line and, and all the other mods that were done. Um, so, so that was the, the, the two aircraft were Alpha Alpha and Alpha Bravo that some of the viewers might know is still down at Heathrow now. Looking, looking a bit weathered. Yes, um, yeah, I mean, uh, no one really knows what's, what, what's going to happen with her eventually, but um, because that, I mean, the aircraft you were allocated as the one that made the first passenger flight, we were delighted to get that one, but because it wasn't going to fly here, then became even more of a logistical challenge. Um, that um, my there was the big team at the museum working with BA and um, contractors on it, and uh, yeah, basically it was moved from Heathrow along the the A4 and the A30 in the middle of the night um, down to Isleworth um, onto um, a, a vessel that could reach Isleworth at high tide, um, was then taken down the Thames, uh, sort of, I mean it was sort of covered over for the journey but brought out for photo shoot in front of the Houses of Parliament um, and what, what I find quite interesting, um, one of the pre-production aircraft went to Brooklands and I remember discussing with the curator there, uh, Julian Temple, that um, because of the coverage of the move of Alpha Alpha, his parents knew that we were getting a Concord here, but they didn't realise there was one at Brooklyn's, which their own son was the curator of. So I mean, it was in the six o'clock news and it had massive coverage. 
um, then sort of put back inside the vessel, taken down the Thames um, up the east coast of the UK by sea um, to Torness Nuclear Power Station, which is um, about 15 miles east of here, um, which was the nearest location with a pier big enough to unload the aircraft. Um, brought by road um, from there, then um, across the fields using the track that the army had laid for a, a training <laughs> exercise, which had to be diverted to avoid a badger set um, as a protected species. Um, so that came across country about two miles then in, into the museum um, and brought into the site um, to the end of the hangar doors then did a, a, a 180 and reversed into the hangar, into the position that it's in wow. now. But worth the journey, I think. Oh, indeed. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the, the only sad aspect of it was in order to make that journey, we had to cut the outer wings off. So they, they've been reattached, and to be honest, most visitors are hard pushed to actually identify Find, yeah. that. So, I mean, obviously, it, there's a whole debate as to whether any Concorde will ever fly, but one thing we do know for certain is this one will never fly again, unfortunately. That's a shame. When you look at the aircraft, I mean, one of the things that struck me when I walked into the hangar here is how immaculate the aircraft does look. You know, if you compare it, say, to the one that is at Heathrow, which is not looking too great these days, but this, you honestly would think that you could just pull this out of the hangar and well, fly. We we're very lucky. Um, I mean, a, a lot of our visitors think it's interesting that we built this hangar especially for Concorde um, because it just fits in it's, space yeah. perfectly. When actually this hangar was built in 1944 um, <laughs> and it, it says a lot about the RAF that they, they built a standard T2 hangar thinking in 1944 well, it might one day be used to house Concorde. <laughs> um, but yeah, I believe Certainly of the British Airways Concords, this was the only one that, when it went to its, its new home in a museum or whatever, went straight indoors, so it's never been sat at... You know, Suspect to the element. You know, like the, element the one in Manchester yeah. that's yeah. In, in their, their lovely building, obviously, was, was outside for a little while, but because of that, it's never been exposed to the elements. It, it's gone straight from the hangar at Heathrow, um, via the move to straight into the hangar here um, and yeah it's, it, it certainly has helped its condition. It's, it's very good, it's very, but you've also got some other great aircraft here. We've been out this morning and had a look at the all BAC-111 which again never was impressed because it's a BA, uh, <laughs> BAC-111 uh, and obviously the Comet you've got here as well and the Vulcan um, which was when we, when we had our 100th live show many years ago now uh, we actually broadcast live from the uh, Vulcan, inside the Vulcan at the uh, Norwich Aviation Museum, right. which is not far from us. But how, I mean, th I mean, those obviously are outside the view, but again, great to see those aircraft here. Um, any particular favourite of yourself? Um, oh, it's like being asked to choose your favourite <laughs> child. Well, I mean, the obvious target is the Vulcan. Um, I mean, who doesn't love the Vulcan? Mm. Um, I mean, and, we are really lucky here that we have one of the two Vulcans that have actually seen combat service. Um, so I mean, as, as many viewers will know, the the, the Vulcan um, that bombed the runway at Stanley um, is at uh, Waddington. Um, I think it's still at Waddington. Um, but we have 
the other one which um, attacked a couple of the Argentinian air defence radars um, in, in the area. Um, and most famously after this, so that was Black Box 5 and 6. Um, after Black Box 6, the refueling probe broke off um, on, uh, on the way back to Ascension, so it had to divert into Rio and, and uh, the crew were interred for about 10 days. Um, enjoying themselves sitting at, at uh, the airport in Brazil. Um, so yeah, I mean, obviously there's a great history to that one. Um, but you know, we, we've got a Danier Comet Four, um, and I think it's a name that most listeners will know. Dan Air was uh, was a popular airline, I think, back in the in the mid '80s or sort of early '80s, mid '80s. Well, well, it's, I mean, obviously, famously, BOEC did the first. Um, you know, first into service with a jet airliner, first transatlantic jet service in 1958, three weeks before Pan Am. Um, but as you know, as, as the Comet was gradually kind of being retired from service, Danier eventually ended up as the largest operator of Comet with some like I've got a current kind of figure. I think it was 45 Comets at one time. Um, but the one we've got. Um, was originally RF Transport Command and then straight to Dan Air, so it doesn't have the BUEC history, but it's still got its its early 80s Dan Air interior, um, which, for, for again, for those of a certain age, there's a, um, oh, what's the film? Uh, I'm trying to remember, the, there's the, the film set, in the, the British television series set in the department store. Are you being served? Are you being served? They, yeah. they made a movie of Are You Being Served for the Rent Holiday to Spain, and they, which is bizarre because they take off from Heathrow and land at Gatwick. But let's, <laughs> uh, let, or, well, I think they board at Heathrow and, and take off from Gatwick. But it's it's exactly the same interior because I think the film was made in '78 or something like that. Um, that you know, no door to the cockpit, just a curtain. Um, uh, you know, no overhead lockers, just a, a kind of parcel shelf that very much of it's like, and obviously ashtrays and the armrests. Um, but I mean, even the, even the 111, it's very easy to, I don't know, uh, not dismiss, but kind of overlook the 111. Um, I have some good fond because, memories yeah, of it, it's, it's It's probably, there's few people who would put it in the top five aircraft <laughs> of all time, but. Yeah, I mean, the one we've got, which was named Lothian Region, yes. so it's perfect for us, um, operated the Edinburgh and Glasgow shuttles down to London, so you know, it's very much a story that ties in with, with the history of Scotland, really. Um, and, you know, it'd be lovely to have a British Caledonian one with, you know, that sort of, the service to West Africa and things like that, but... Um, you know, the 111's just one of those workhorses that yeah. never really gets the recognition it deserves. So, so it's, it's great to have it in the collection. I think most people associate heavy usage or very popular aircraft with, say, the 737 yeah. uh, from Boeing. Obviously one of the most popular narrow-bodied aircraft of its time still is. But, you know, the, the 111 for us in the UK, I think, and in, and in Scotland, was, as you said, a workhorse. It was a popular regional jet that you could jet down like myself to Tunisia or somewhere on holiday in and 
I think and, it's, it, it's it's lovely going back on board. And in some respects, it's nice if only because it's an aircraft that avoids that standard twin-engine underwing pod that, yeah. you know, you get into that cliche of every aircraft nowadays looks exactly the same. At least the 111 was from the era when aircraft really had character and real engines. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> With the hush kits on as well. Well, exactly. So it's not just a static air, you've got some great static aircraft outside. What else has the museum got to offer? Because you've got some great hangars here with exhibits in. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're lucky. We are, um, you know, most aviation museums are very limited in their size. I mean, we're lucky as a national museum, we have uh, three um, calendar Hamilton hang hangars on, on this uh, T2. So we've got quite a lot of space, although we've kind of run out of space for more aircraft. Um, you know, museums always a poor vacuum. Um, but we have a, we collect all aspects of aviation, so we're not limited just to military, just to light, you know, private aircraft. You know, we do have Concorde, um, we've got a Comet, a 111 uh, Viscount, um, but you know, we, we've got the military stuff as well. Um, so yeah, I mean, we've got a Spitfire, I mean, it's a Mark 16, so it was built in July 1945, so it's, it's not a wartime veteran, but um, it's still... It's still a Spitfire. It, it's surprising how <laughs> many museums in the UK actually don't have Spitfires when you think how many there used to be around. Um, so, and one good thing about going back to Concord is it... it um, changed the demographic of the museum so our visitor profile became much more families rather than just enthusiasts and the number of people who come to see Concord and then go round the hangs and go oh that's a Spitfire, I've heard of a Spitfire and they've maybe never seen one in their life but they actually get to see it when they wouldn't come to an aviation museum normally because it's not their thing um, but I mean we also have some um, you know, we, we've got all the the kind of standard things like a Meteor, um, a Harrier. Um, we've got a, a Bolingbroke, which is the Canadian version, the Blenheim, um, which is actually painted in its Commonwealth Air Training Plan colours, um, which is, is unusual. It's not painted as a Blenheim. Um, because, you know, almost half of all British and Commonwealth Air crew trained under that scheme, yeah. but it's not commemorated anywhere in the UK, really, um, other than here. So, yeah, we, we've, we've got a lot of the the kind of things you would expect to see, um, a Tornado, a Jaguar, um, but we've got some more unusual things. So we've, we've got a Scottish Aviation Twin Pioneer, which as the National Museum of Flight Scotland you might expect, um, but more unusual things like um, a Mischus 163 Comet, um, which there's not that many around mm. now. Um, what's particularly interesting about our one um, I mean, I would imagine many viewers will have heard of um, Carrot, Captain Eric Winkle Brown, you know, Britain's greatest ever pilot, um, who is known for many, many things, but is the only Allied pilot ever to fly the Comet under rocket power. And the, um, the, the aircraft that he flew that day, which was the 10th of June 1945, is the Comet we have here. Um, so I mean, he was he was from Scotland. The the comet that he flew is in Scotland. Um, so you know we we were able to and we were we were able to interview him before before he sadly passed. And we've got some footage of 
of him talking about what it was like flying the Comet and many of the other aircraft as well. I mean, he, he flew most of the types we've got here. Um, I mean, we've also got a... Um, it's an Aero S103, which is the Czech-built version of the, the MiG-15 BIS, so the, um. the, the, the upgraded uh, MiG-15. Um, uh, we also have uh, an unusual aircraft. We've got a general aircraft Signet, um, which was a pre-war private light aircraft with tricycle undercarriage, so quite unusual for the 30s. Um, but as with many aircraft, that period was impressed during the war, so it's actually displayed in, in its wartime camouflage colours. But the one we've got um, was with 51 Operational Training Unit. Um, basically, it was used to train night fighter pilots um, who would possibly be converting onto the Havoc, um, the Douglas um, Boston Havoc, um, for as potential as a night fighter, when they wouldn't have been familiar with tricycle undercarriage. But interestingly, um, the chief flying instructor at that time at 51 OTU was one Guy Gibson. Uh -huh. um, so he actually flew that signet twice, it's in his logbook. Um, so for an aircraft that maybe not many people will have heard of, it's got quite an interesting history. As I say, the, the history on this site as well, where we're, where we're sitting now, it's... it's it's, well, it was a functional site, wasn't it? Was it a, na yeah. was it a naval, uh, naval um, base? Yeah, I mean, it was uh, a naval air station, the First World War. Um, so a combination of airships, um, you know, patrolling the North Sea, looking for new boats, um, but also fixed-wing aircraft. Um, and we actually, there was a couple of Zeppelins bombed Edinburgh in April 1916, and there was an aircraft took off, or an Avro 5 or 4, actually, took off from here to try and intercept them with no ground control, no ground aids, completely failed to find them and the guy was seriously injured landing back here <laughs> in the dark. Um, they also, towards the end of the First World War, they formed a torpedo training unit um, who were training on torpedo dropping techniques with the idea they were going to attack the German high seas fleet. Um, the armistice came along before that happened, um, but actually they would um, fly the aircraft to a beach um, near Dunbar, which is uh, just to the east of here, and load the torpedoes on the beach because they would have been too heavy to take off from the grass airfield here. Um, but it was incredibly secret, but it was the techniques of torpedo dropping from aircraft were actually pioneered here. So you could argue that the British attack on Taranto and the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor started with a torpedo training unit here at East Watchin. Um So that was that's the First World War story. Um, then closed at the end of uh, First World War, 1922. Um, reactivated in 1940 um, as a night fighter operational training unit, um, training uh, a lot of. Um, Commonwealth crews and free Poles, free French, free Belgians um, in night fighter techniques. Then in 1942 it converted to coastal command training, anti-shipping strike, um, so again torpedo carrying aircraft. So kind of things went full circle again. It's quite the history that um, you've got and, here. And then uh, so it closed again in the Second World War and um, Slight research in 1961, we reopened for three and a half months. Uh, they were 
lengthening the runway at Edinburgh Airport um, and so for for that period in the summer of 1961 this became Edinburgh Airport oh wow which, which is quite interesting if you look at the, the British European Airways timetables for the period they actually include the, the bus time to for the bus service to come out here as part of the flight timetable <laughs> it's quite, it's quite I didn't realise that I didn't realise that at all that is very interesting um, but it's also honestly I can't express enough for, especially for the listeners who are watching the show they need to come and see what you've got here because there's, there's so much to see and do but is there and we're going to start to wrap up this half of the uh, half of the chat in a moment because I know Nev's got some great questions for you <laughs> but is there is there one aircraft that you would love to get here uh, you know anything and you know, whether you know any sort of aircraft is there one that you would love to get on this museum site if you had the chance to go and yeah I mean we as a collection, so I mean, as part of the National Museum of Scotland, some of our aviation collection is displayed in our main museum in Edinburgh. So we have the Pilcher Hawk from 1896, which is the oldest wow. British, British aircraft surviving. Um, um, so I mean, Pilcher Hawk, for those that, that haven't heard of him, he was a contemporary of Otto Lilienthal. So it was that kind of what they called a glider, but it was basically a hang, kind of a hang glider um, when they were just sort of learning um, how, how, to, how to do it. Um, and he was working on a powered aircraft when he tragically crashed flying the Hawk that we have and died of his injuries three days later. Um, so we've got that from 1896, and then a big, our next aircraft is the Pusamoth from 1930. So I'd love to get a First World War aircraft. <laughs> the, the problem is they're all either in museums or they're replicas. Yeah. Um, and what's really annoying is we, we used to have, um, in the 1950s, we acquired um, a Parmel Panther, which I'd, I'd be surprised if many um, viewers have actually heard of that. It was a very um, obscure rare naval aircraft for the end of the First World War. Unusual um, for the respect of being a naval aircraft rather than its wings folding, the fuselage folded. I think I've um, seen that. Probably up there in, in terms of the ugliest aircraft. <laughs> it, it was not a pretty thing. Um, we acquired one in the 1950s, but at that time we didn't have the museum flight. Um, it was never ever going to be displayed in a main museum in Edinburgh, um, so we've still got the the Bentley BR2 rotary engine, an interplane strut, um, an undercarriage leg, and the rest was chucked in a bonfire. Oh, um, and it's a salutary lesson of you. Know, I mean, that would be a completely unique aircraft now, but yeah, sadly we don't have it anymore. Well, it's been great to chat with you, Ian. I know Nev's got some great questions for you coming up, but uh, yeah, I must, I must admit, you just saying about the parts of aircraft out, those who watch the show know that I'm back at home, in my office at home. I've got a window section from a BA777, stage one fan blade from an RB211 engine, a fuselage window section from a L1011 RAF TriStar oh, yeah. as well, one of the Royal Air Force ones, which got sadly dismantled and broken up at uh, Brunton Thorpe, but yeah, I can, uh, have you, are, you, are you the same, have you got a piece at home? I, I, <laughs> I have to I, ask. I try not to collect bits, I mean obviously there's, there's potential conflicts of interest in that 
you're collecting things that the museum would also collect. Yeah. Um, that, I mean, my own personal research area is um, Second World War radar. Um, so I've got a couple of valves um, and a lot of documents and pe things from, from people who served on radar. But whilst I have the passion, I, I tend to keep the collecting for, for, for the museum <laughs> rather than, you know, I don't want to lose my job because I've, I've taken something that should have come here instead. I know a lot of people ask, how am I still married? Um, that, well, the wife puts up with a hell of a lot, but um, well, it's still th good. There is that old one of, you know, the wife saying, well, that, that Rolls Royce engine, it's, it's, it's the engine <laughs> of me, and you know, I reflect on that as I read my magazine off my yeah. Merlin engine table. No, but it's great to talk to you, Ian. Well, thank you. Nev's going to be chatting with you very soon. Got some great questions for you. And, uh, yeah, thank you, Ian. Thanks. No problem, thanks. Wow. Fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. Many yeah. thanks to Ian for his uh, massive contribution there. Um, I've got a second part to, to play out. Well, perhaps we'll play that out next week, actually, or, or, or when I've finished editing it. But um, yeah, uh, uh, I, I just could listen to Ian all day. And isn't it marvellous when you've got the curator of the museum as he is, and he's so enthusiastic and knowledgeable about the subject? It's I the passion, really, isn't it? Uh, it's that passion, isn't it, yeah. that, that what makes that makes you good at that position, doesn't it? I, I think it's well, he's got one of those jobs. I think we'd all love to have. Mm. Yeah, although I wouldn't have anywhere near the knowledge he has. That's that's the that's the mind blowing bit for me, really. But lots of love in the chat room for that. Thanks, guys. Glad you enjoyed that. And uh, as uh, Nev said, we've got um, part two of that, haven't we, Nev? Uh, that's mm. going to be uh, going to be back or going to be on very soon as well with more great uh, chat with Nev and Ian. So keep your eyes peeled for that on the show. So Armando's not here. But he is here in a kind of virtual sense. So we have got some military news. I know uh, Jonathan Warner is in the chat room. So poised and ready. Happy. He's poised and ready. So just for Jonathan Warner and all our military fans, Matt, press the button. Watch up, buggies, one, three, five, fifty, angels, sixteen, three, four, zero. Okay. Our first military story is from flightglobal.com. It's about the Irish Air Corps receiving the first of two uh, CASA, or what used to be CASA, C-295 maritime surveillance aircraft from Airbus Defense and Space. These uh, two, The first of these two aircraft touched down at Casement Aerodrome on the 27th of June. Now, this was acquired through what is approximately a 252 million US dollar contract that was signed back in December of 2019 with the new aircraft repra replacing two C-235, CN-235s that are already in service with the Irish Air Corps. Now this deal also covers the spare, uh, spare parts provision and some training in the aircraft. There was a statement from the Irish Department of Defense saying that these new aircraft are primarily equipped for maritime surveillance, particularly fisheries protection, but will also provide the Air Corps with the capability to deliver a range of services, including logistics support, troops and equipment, medical evacuation, air ambulance, search and rescue, and a general utility role. Uh, Ireland's lead C-295 appeared at the Paris Air Show earlier this, uh, this month 
in Airbus's static display area. Uh, the second of these aircraft, according to Dublin, will be delivered a little bit later this year. Um, now, Dublin also last uh, December ordered a, a single uh, CN-295 in a tactical transport configuration for approximately 59 million euros. That, uh, that aircraft will support uh, tactical activities by special operations forces. That aircraft will be delivered in 2025. Now, Matt is hopefully showing some pictures of this beautiful, beautiful aircraft. I've actually flown on the Casa 235. I've never flown on a 295, but it's such an incredibly capable aircraft being uh, capable of flying, uh, flying uh, into austere airfield. So it's, a, it, it's, it's lineage goes back to the Casa 212. Uh, so it's a short takeoff and landing. It can do unimproved airstrips. It can do nighttime operations. But the best part about it, it's like a C-130 or an A-400 where it's got a ramp and door on the back that you can do uh, quick insertions and um, extractions of personnel and equipment, as well as a parachute uh, airdrop roll where you could potentially drop rescue supplies or resupply missions or even personnel out the ramp and door in the back. Again, hopefully you're seeing the pictures there. What a beautiful aircraft. I can't wait to one day see this airplane in person somewhere in Europe. I, I mean... <laughs> It's like it's like the the C two nine five. I think me and Nick agree. It's like it's like a ba like a baby Hercules. It's like someone's took the Hercules and kind of all of the kind yeah. of and and again for those that are listening rather than watching, <laughs> whatever that was. Yeah, they've, it, stuck, the, they've stuck it on a sixty degree wash and then stood it in front of. The okay, fire. right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> But it's, uh, it's, a, it's a yeah, it's a great it's little bit of nice. kit. It's a great mm, little bit. It's of kit. really nice with the winglets and um, yeah. I don't know. There's something about the um, the kind of the whole the the windshield area on it. It's just it's know, got it's a sort of corporate feel about it. Actually, it looking quite, at that, yeah. corporate military, corporate face. military. Yeah, I, I feel like that should be like I don't know. Instead of like, is it what do they call it? Is it um, um, uh, Marine One? Isn't it when they move? you know yeah, from the yeah, airport yeah. to wherever i feel like this i, I suppose you, you know it, it, it hasn't got the the sort of you, you still need a runway i suppose don't you that's the only thing but you know do you know what i mean it's got that sort of feel about it it sort of feels a bit quality yeah bit, bit no a bit pop bit upgrade bit of an upgrade i think yeah yeah but, um, Absolutely. so armando has got another one for us and uh, this one particular one is uh, uh from us from the world warbirdsnews.com and it's all about the national museum of the usaf as next military story is from one of my favorite museums in the united states this is the national museum of the united states air force the story is from warbirdnews.com, where the public is going to be invited to the National Museum of the United States Air Force to see three different World War II aircraft uh, flown by the commemorative Air Force during their air power history tour. These aircraft are going to arrive on July 3rd and are going to feature the B-29 Superfortress Fifi, uh, the B-24 Liberator Diamond Lil, and a T-6 Texan, obviously a legendary trainer from World War II. All these aircraft are going to be on static display to the public uh, from July 4th, July 5th, from 9 to 5, both days. Uh, aircraft crews are going to be able to talk to visitors. There are cockpit tours available for the B-29 and B-24. And, of course, this is all subject to maintenance and weather. 
but in honor of the T6 trainer flown by the Women's Air Service pilots, there's going to be some free guided gallery tours featuring women in aviation uh, during this time period, taking visitors through the history of women in the Air Force from World War II to space exploration. Um, the Air Force Museum put out a uh, itinerary basically on Monday, July 3rd, Tuesday, July 4th, and Wednesday, July 5th, 9 to 5. There's going to be different activities with aircraft uh, landing and then and then some of the uh, tours that are available there. Now, the B-29 B-24 squadron of the commemorative Air Force brings together the aircraft pilots and crews from more than 70 different units across the country to create what is called the Air Power Squadron. That is an ever-changing assortment of military aircraft touring together to bring the sights, sounds, and smells of World War II aviation to audiences across the United States. Uh, now in 2023, the National Museum of the United States Air Force is celebrating its 100th anniversary. Now since 1923, this museum has grown from a small engineering study collection to the world's largest military aviation museum and is a world-renowned center for air and space, power technology, and culture preservation. Uh, you can find them at nationalmuseum.af.mil. Um, it's friendly for all ages. I do believe it's free. I've been there a couple times. It's located on the grounds of Wright-Patterson Air Force Base near Dayton, Ohio. Uh, and uh, it's free parking also inside the museum once you're there. In addition to seeing the B-24 and the B-29 and the T-6, there are more than 350 different uh, airspace vehicles, missiles, thousands of artifacts, uh, there's a total of, of 19 acres of indoor exhibit space um, with thousands and thousands of people going to this museum every year. One of my favorite parts of this museum is actually the executive transport where they have uh, numerous different Air Force Ones from over the years and, and they're actually open to the public. You can come up uh, into the aircraft and check them out. And of course, there's the usual suspects, F, uh, uh, SR-71s and all the fighter jets all the way back to uh, you know World War One, even fighters, um, I, I believe there. But anyway, go check out the National Museum of the United States Air Force, uh, search for them on the web, and then go check out some of these uh, bombers Another on tour. case, I think, of uh, wrong country, wrong time, because everything always seems to happen <laughs> over in the US that's um, you know really good and has these amazing aircraft. You know, mm. the B-29 Super Fortress, or Fifi, as everyone knows, um, the aircraft is one of those aircraft that I would love to personally see. I mean, we're lucky we've got we've got obviously the the Sally B or Memphis Bell, the B seventeen mm -hmm. here in the UK at Duxford. Although that's not um, flying now, is it? Which it is. It's back in the air now. They got their certificate back oh, last did week. They? Oh, yeah. fantastic! Um, we, we we're lucky we can go and see that and 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 pretty much stand right next to it and mm -hmm. stuff. But the the B twenty nine suit, the you know Fifi, it's one of those aircraft. You, you've only got to Google Fifi. And yeah. it comes up, and it is a gorgeous, you know, polished aluminium aircraft to see. And they're <laughs> lucky. You guys over in the uh, the US are lucky to uh, to have that on your doorstep. But um, no, definitely good to go and see. If you're out in the US, go over to uh, to the museum on, uh, as I said, on July the third on Monday from 10 a.m. and uh, go and get a chance to see all these aircraft. And if anyone is listening who is in the U.S. and does get the chance to go over to the National Museum of the USAF on Monday the 3rd of July, get some pictures, send us something. We'd love to hear from you. All the details on where you can send that through uh, coming up at the end of the show. Now, Armando's got... Uh, 
Uh, one more uh, to uh, bring us on the military segment this week. It's uh, from thedrive.com, and it's a very interesting one, this one. It's all about the, uh, the, the history of aerial refueling uh, celebrated by tankers, flyovers across the U.S. This last military story is from thedrive.com, one of my favorite sites. Uh, a century of aerial refueling is being celebrated by tanker flyovers across the United States. That's over 100 years ago, over California, two U.S. Army Air Service crews passed a fuel hose between two aircraft, allowing one plane to be topped off by the other, uh, opening up what was nothing short of a revolution in military flying. Now, that milestone, which was uh, the first properly recorded practical air-to-air -air refueling, is marked this week by their successors, the tanker fleet of the United States Air Force, the most capable kind of its uh, capable of its kind anywhere in the world. Now, the service is honoring a hundred years of aerial refueling excellence by flyovers taking place over 50 states with more than 80 tanker aircraft and 70 receivers. Participating tankers are, of course, the venerable KC-135 Stratotanker, the soon-to-be-retired KC-10 Extender, and the latest still troublesome KC-46 Pegasus. The 6th Aerial Refueling Wing at MacDill Air Force Base is actually the oldest in the Air Mobility Command and is leading these celebrations. Now, as we know, tankers perform a vital, if sometimes unsung role, ensuring the rapid global reach for U.S. forces and allies, uh, not only extending a range of, of wide variety of aircraft, but also enhancing lethality, flexibility, and versatility. At the same time, these tankers can also carry cargo, passengers perform aeromedical evacuations, and they are increasingly taking on a number of other missions. Now, the, going back to the first two aircraft, they refueled for the first time on June 27, 1923. Those two were some modified de Havilland DH-4 biplanes, which was a multi-purpose British design that was widely used uh, in a range of roles by the U.S. military. At the controls were First Lieutenant Virgil Hine and First Lieutenant Frank Seifert, and the second aircraft was crewed by Captain Lowell Smith and First Lieutenant John Richter. Uh, these two aircraft first made contact uh, 500 feet above Rockwell Field. That's uh, San Diego's North Island. Uh, Seifert in the rear cockpit of the first aircraft delivered a rubber hose to Richter in the rear cockpit of the second aircraft. Uh, the tanker aircraft had both an extra 110-gallon fuel tank and a 50-foot metal-reinforced refueling tube that was lowered through a ventral trapdoor. Of course, over the years, we've seen many types of different aerial refueling systems, from looped hoses to straight hoses, uh, drogue and probe systems, and then, of course, the most common, the flyable boom and receptacle is what we see today. Now, as far as the next 100 years of aerial refueling, that remains a question. Uh, right now, we're working on the KC-46, of which the acquisition is still ongoing. The Pegasus is a traditional non-stealthy, very non-stealthy, uh, commercial derivative off a of 767. Obviously, we keep talking about it, continues to suffer from some significant issues with, let's just call them key systems. But there's also the next generation aerial refueling system, or the NGAS, as the Air Force is calling it, just around the corner. Uh, NGAS, or NGAS, I suppose, is uh, supposed to be able to provide support in what they're calling contested scenarios. Uh, that's something that tankers traditionally have avoided. 
Lockheed Martin and Boeing have already been exploring design concepts with blended wing bodies and uh, some of these designs that are supposed to offer some degree of stealth to enhance their survivability. So whatever the future of the Air Force tanker fleet looks like, it's clear that these aircraft will continue to be an absolutely essential part in operations uh, by the U.S. Air Force, by the Navy, by all of our allies that are using uh, aerial refuelings. Um, when, of course, the, with the need for more survivable tankers, there's also growing signs that the Air Force's uh, next generation one is going to incorporate some elements just as those visionary pilots did, you know, 100 years ago uh, over California. So there you go. Enjoy some of these pictures. Pretty cool to see the evolution of aerial refueling over a hundred years. It's one of those things when you see it done on YouTube. There's lots of videos on YouTube mm. with air-to-air -air refueling. There is, it is a blooming art to doing that job. Yeah, absolutely. Lots and of hats off, and to, the, stuff, hats yeah. off to the, the guys and girls who do that because, uh, yeah. yeah, very, very uh, ingenious part of the uh, Air Force, I tell you. Not for me, personally. Not for you, no. <laughs> but thanks, uh, Armando, for putting all those together for us, as always this week, and the military segment. I know uh, Jonathan Warner will appreciate that very much indeed. Mm. So it's time... Ho hopefully not just uh, Jonathan Warner, otherwise we should probably just do a special <laughs> podcast for Jonathan Warner. But, just for uh, Jonathan Warner, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Uh, now, if you do like military aviation, don't forget to let us know. Yeah. Send us an email, details Absolutely. at the end of the show. Yeah, Mr Warner is, is short on friends. He needs, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it is time for caption this it's uh, our time of the uh, show where we have our picture that we publish on facebook each wednesday uh, and to give you guys and girls a chance to leave your most wittiest comments on so matt's going to pop up the picture on the screen and nev for the benefit of those watching via audio podcast what is this picture depicting well uh, the, the engine cowling appears to be there but the engine itself is missing uh, from this aircraft, uh, so you can see right th through the whole thing. That's the uh, the summary of it, I would say. So we've had uh, lots of answers in, yeah. and we're going to kick off with get, get your uh, get your uh, messages in the chat room. By the way, if you are watching on YouTube, then get your messages in the chat room. At uh, Carlos, here we go. Yep, Neil says in a new push to make air travel net zero, Airbus introduce hamster wheel propulsion. <laughs> <laughs> uh, James says it's called the promise of liftoff engine or Polo for short, it's the engine with the, the hold in it. That's <laughs> what so they did there. Mick? Uh, Nick's got Jake. one is coming from Jake, and it's the new Mary Whitehouse engine. Oh. Suck, squeeze, bang and blow were deemed too inappropriate. <laughs> family show. <clears throat> family, uh, show. family show, ladies and gentlemen. Thank family you. show. Uh, James is getting all political with this answer. I like this one. Here we go. It's the Boris Johnson engine lacking substance oh. and full of wind. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. Ooh. <laughs> That's a bit dangerous. Uh, Mark says, I know you said you've lost an engine, but... <laughs> Quite, absolutely. Yeah. It's a, I mean, it, it's how, like, everything's disappeared from it, isn't it? It's not just, yeah. like, it's not, you know, there's no pipes, no nothing, just gone. Yeah. <laughs> And Nick. Next. Yep, similar theme with the next one, actually. This one comes from Chris. Now then, boys and girls, this is the final test of the walk-around inspection. Let us know if you see anything amiss. <laughs> God, I think if they pass, I failed that. Or, oh, <laughs> uh, Stuart says, this engine is meeting net 
zero targets early. Yeah, I can imagine. Excellent. Yeah. Good one. Very uh, good. Paul says uh, Dyson's contribution to next generation <laughs> turbo fans. I knew somebody was going to go down the Dyson route. We've got it's, loads in the chat room on the Dyson. It's good. It's good. Yeah, it's good. Absolutely. We've all we've all had that hair dryer, haven't we? We've seen that hair dryer and that fan. Yeah. Uh, um, I like this one because it's it's got a Star Trek twang to it. Uh, John says Rolls Royce's new head of design denies that she has Klingon heritage <laughs> with her environmentally friendly cloaking device. Oh dear. Oh. And uh, finally, uh, Nick, you can take this one. If you want. Uh, so this one's from Sturman. The village idiot buffoon Bill's latest solution against bird strikes. I mean, it, it, it <laughs> would cure the bird strikes yeah. issue. Well, yeah, true, 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 true. And, and for the birds, it's going to be a lot more something less painful. Yeah, 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 yeah. Less splatty. <laughs> Quite. I don't know if they can get the technology to work. That's the issue, isn't it? Uh, right. right. Uh, yeah. Okay. We'll go through the chat room. Yeah, we'll go through the chat room. So several in the uh, the chat room here. So uh, I'm a three. Uh, oh, uh, sorry. I'm a three mugger grey fan. That fan. That was. Uh, that's got nothing to do with this at all, is it? I picked up the wrong one there. Uh, good news from Richard Adams. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, uh, as I say, Mazus is going down the obvious route here. We've got the engine Dyson style, of course. Uh, it's uh, Captain Ridiculous Wits is saying the calmest evacuation ever, as they realised there were no engines. I don't suppose they got it in the air either, did it? Uh, we've got Mayman Mike says, Captain, for some reason, it seems we lost thrust in the right engine. Not quite sure why. Uh, the uh, the next one, Captain Crew, zero emission right there. Unfortunately, also zero flight. Good point. Uh, <laughs> Good point, well made. Uh, Richard Adams says they knew they shouldn't uh, have diverted to Liverpool. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> I'm sure that's not true in any way, shape, or form. Uh, Neil Lamwell says Dyson moves into engine manufacturing. Fancy design, triple the cost. Yeah, ain't that the truth? Uh, yeah. Their fans are lovely, but they are like three times as much as I say. Sticking with the Dyson theme, Dirk S is saying the Dyson comment from Facebook is the only legit comment on this. He's <laughs> saying, love that. Uh, we've got uh, the new Dyson bladeless fan has been repurposed. Uh, <laughs> And finally, Captain Ridiculous Wit says, when I said kill the third engine, uh, I didn't mean it completely eject it. <laughs> I mean, that's, that is quite an interesting piece of engineering now, I will say. Yes, indeed. Yes. indeed. If they could, but, I wonder um, if they could make it work. I wonder well, if they could make well, it work. Yeah. We'll, uh, we'll get, have Dyson on the show. I'm sure he'll do something. Right. Okay, uh, so that is the captionist for this week. Thanks to everyone who's uh, contributed to that. Thank you to everyone. Uh, every Wednesday, we'll try and pop a picture up on our Facebook page. If you don't already follow us on there, more details on that at the end of the show. And next week, there'll be a fresh picture for you to leave your witty comments on. So, Nev, over to you for the book giveaway. It's that time again, isn't it? Yes. Uh, so just before we come to the end of the show, uh, I have a uh, book to give away this week, uh, which was this one, uh, From Mons to Mali uh, by Andrew Thomas. 50 extraordinary and little-known vignettes of British and Commonwealth airmen in action since 1914. The question from last week was, in 1927, Charles Lindbergh was the first person to fly his aircraft, the Spirit of St. Louis, but across which ocean? And a lot of people got this right. Of course, the answer is the Atlantic Ocean. So in my special little bag here, I have uh, all the correct answers. I shall draw one out at <laughs> random. 
And let's see. Oh, quick, quick, quick mention as well to Grub Street as well for uh, oh yes for books. Yeah, excellent job from Grub Street. Thank you for supplying us uh, with with books continuously. Oh, and look who it is. Let's uh, open that up so everybody can see it. Uh, this week's winner is John Picard. Thank you very much indeed. John. Oh, well done, John. I'm going to send you well done, Mr. Picard. And if you reply with your um, postal address, I shall send that to you tomorrow. Uh, now we've got the, this week's uh, question. Uh, the prize this week is Cold Boys uh, by Richard Pike. Previously unpublished tales of daring do from pilots and crew of the Lightning, Phantom, Hunter, Tornado and other aircraft. Ooh. Great read, actually. I had a quick flick through that earlier on. Nearly 180 pages worth of, of stuff in there. And this week's question is what is the fastest business jet currently in production that's the key currently what is the fastest business jet currently in production send your answers to podcast at plaintalkinguk.com and we'll draw the um i shan't be here next week actually so let's see if we might be able to hold it off for another week perhaps but uh, uh if so you've you got a couple say, of weeks to get in get your yeah, answers yeah in. so yeah. it's podcast at plaintalkinguk.com what is the fastest business jet currently in production Ooh. good luck with your correct answer google is your friend on this one by the way you are allowed to uh, use it don't be afraid uh, don't be shy we'd just rather don't tell lots, us. just don't tell us yeah absolutely we don't <laughs> care we want lots of people to uh, to, to get entered actually while we're talking about ways to get in touch let's uh, whack through the socials then uh, if i may if you want to contact us by whatsapp number it is plus four four seven five seven two two four nine one six six that's plus four four seven five seven two two four nine one six six that ends up directly in carlos's sweaty palm he'll hey, give you all here, the and yeah there we go and uh, so messages will go straight through to him uh, it's a great way of interacting with carlos and the rest of us here on the team to find out more uh, socials wise all you need to do is search your chosen platform twitter uh, facebook and of course instagram as well you'll find us there under the tag of plain talking uk search your favorite social media platform for plain talking uk uh, our email address uh, we'd love to hear feedback from you by the way do please get in touch in all the usual ways uh, for that we'd love to hear from from you in with uh, in terms of uh, any comments that you have uh, good or bad feedback we love getting feedback from you as well it's podcast at plain talking uk.com as podcast at plain talking uk.com and of course finally don't forget our wonderful website where you can even go and purchase yourself a t-shirt or a military mug why not it's www.plaintalkinguk.com that's www.plaintalkinguk.com it's as easy as that we'd love to hear from you really would love to hear from you with all your feedback so quickly we've got a few minutes before we finish the show so quick uh, quick round robin with uh, what everyone is up to next week we'll start with nev What's going on in the world of Mr. Bounds? Oh, hectic. Next week, uh, down in Brighton for a couple of days at the office, doing some customer visits during the week. Uh, then on uh, Friday evening, I shan't be on the show next week, unfortunately. What? But I will be in the company of Captain Jeff and Captain Nick. Oh, uh, I see. Esteemed. Uh, a place not not too far from where I live here, so we're going to go up and see them, see how they're doing as he's in town next week. So that'll be nice, and uh, mm. look forward to seeing Jeff. I haven't seen him for ages. That'll Absolutely, be, uh, yeah, definitely. 
And Matt, what are you up to uh, next week? Anything exciting? Um, no, I think it's a pretty quiet week actually. Just sort of um, romping up to sort of yeah, just 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 work basically. I think um, yeah, that's about it really. Yeah. Yeah, I know. Very boring, isn't it? Very boring. <laughs> how about how about you, Nick? Obviously, I know you're uh, you've got a, a busy weekend planned. Yep, and I'm uh, well now. I've finally got my car back after the uh, after breaking down on the way back from Cosford. Um, yeah, I'm going to whiz over to Portsmouth tomorrow and uh, jump on the hovercraft and go over to the Isle of Wight. Go and see my son. Oh, nice! Oh, love nice. that. Yeah, yeah, love that. Like that. A very highly recommended form of travel, I have to say. So Absolutely. if you're ever if yeah. you're ever in the Portsmouth area, I definitely recommend a little trip on the hovercraft. Mm. Now, quickly before we finish next week, Nev, we're off somewhere, aren't we? Oh yes, almost forgotten. Uh, Norwich Aviation Museum on Saturday of next week. Uh, we'll be taking the camera and fluffy mic with us, uh, doing interviews at the Norwich. Um, what's it called? Uh, wheels and wings, wings and wheels. wheels. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Wings and wheels. That's it. Um, so that's going to be great, and we'll see our friend Carl up there, I guess, as well. Mm, hopefully. Over in Norwich, which will be great. Um, so, uh, if anybody's around at all next week... Uh, Mazus, if you all know you're in the chat room, is, yeah. mm. uh, he's one of our local listeners in Norwich. Mazus will be there. So if you are in the Norwich area next Saturday, get yourselves over to the City of Norwich Aviation Museum. We would love to see you there. Me and Nev will be there, uh, as Nev said, with the fluffy mic. So that is where we're going to bring episode 462 to a close of the Plain Talking UK podcast. Big thanks to Nick for... Uh, putting lots of good stories in for us this week. Thanks to Matt for doing everything wonderful in the studio. Thanks to Nev, as, all, all, as always, for his uh, great contribution to the show and also the book stuff. And also thanks to Armando for all the military news segments he sent in this week. Thank you to you as well. He's very busy, bless him. Yes. But hopefully he'll be back at some point very soon. So from me, Carlos, here in the home studio, from Matt in the P2K Master Suite Studios, from Nev, we'll miss you next week, Nev, and uh, from Nick as well. Have a great weekend whatever you're up to stay safe fly safe and we'll see you next friday on the show take care everyone say goodbye bye bye bye, -bye. bye, -bye. bye, -bye.